We're in Luke 13 today, and just to remind ourselves of where we are, Jesus is traveling, we think probably on the other side of the Jordan, if you remember your geography, I don't have a map today, but in the north we have the Sea of Galilee and the Galilee region, we have in the south Judea, sandwiched between them is Samaria, and then across the Jordan is Perea, and we'll see this in a few minutes, but Herod, Antipas, is the ruler over Galilee and Perea, so kind of these disjointed-looking uh, sections of of Jewish life. Now, who was in charge of Judea? Who was over that? Pilate, right? So we have Pilate, we have, and then Herod in uh, Galilee and Perea. So Jesus is probably across the Jordan right now, teaching in the villages. It says in Luke thirteen twenty-two, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Well, now we're in verse 31, and our text this morning is from Luke 13, 31 to 35. It says, Just at that time some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as the hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time when comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, starting in verse 31, we have a a warning from the Pharisees to Jesus about Herod. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, just to remind ourselves of who Herod was, this again is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod ruling when Jesus was born. He's the one who killed the, the infants in Bethlehem to destroy this one who was going to come be the Messiah. After he died, remember, uh, before he died, uh, Joseph and Mary took the, the infant to Egypt for a time. After Herod died, they went to Nazareth, and that was the place in Galilee. So Herod Antipas would have been ruler over that portion uh, of Israel. And so Jesus spent most of his life in the, the sphere of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas reigned from 4 BC after his father's death to about AD 39. So a long reign, and again, before, or just, just after Jesus was born, his reign started, and he reigned till a few years after Jesus went to heaven. This Herod, Herod Antipas, is the Herod who had John the Baptist arrested and executed. Let's stay in the Gospel of Luke, go back to Luke chapter 3. We have this note here, but verse 19 and 20. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, that is John the Baptist, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And Mark has a, a good description of what happened with regard to John the Baptist. Go look at Mark chapter 6. And I'll read a sort of lengthy portion, but I think it helps us get an idea of the man Herod was. Herod Antipas again. Mark 6 verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, that is, heard of what Jesus was doing, healing people, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now notice John the Baptist didn't do any miracles, 
They thought maybe now he was resurrected, he could do miracles. Others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he, that is Jesus, is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So at least at this time, Herod himself thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. For Herod himself, verse 17, had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison, in prison on account of his, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So we have here Herod. Again, we see clearly what kind of man he is. He's wicked. He takes his brother's wife for himself and arrests John when John had the gall to push back. And yet, verse 20, it says he was afraid of John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. So he's maybe superstitious. He doesn't want to go too far. He's wicked enough to take his brother's wife and to put a holy man in prison, but doesn't want to go so far as to execute him. Uh, Matthew 14.5 says this also. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, that is John, he feared the crowd because he regarded John as a prophet. So whether for his own uh, superstition, or because fearing the crowd, he wants to keep John alive. And yet, he's so weak that when he makes this rash oath, he kills John when he could have refused to do so. He could have apologized to his guests and said, I, I, I will not do this thing. But he, it says in verse 26, he, because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So, Herod is a weak and a wicked man. We also see later in Mark, verse 8.15, you don't have to turn there, but this mentions Herod as well. Jesus was giving orders to the disciples. He said, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, we know what the leaven of the Pharisees is. It's hypocrisy, Jesus says in Luke 12. But what's the leaven of Herod? And from what we know about Herod, it could be something like worldliness or wickedness. That's what Herod was like. That's what characterized his life, this worldliness and wickedness, weakness, we could say, as well. Now, back to the Gospel of Luke. I find this really interesting, and I wish we knew more about the background of, of Luke and how he compiled his Gospel. Because I've often said it's clear that he has sources, he even says he has sources in the beginning of the Gospel. I think he may have had input from um, Mary, the mother of Jesus herself, and other people who knew Jesus, who followed Jesus, Luke 8, verse 3, mentions that one of Jesus' supporters was Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. And this steward is an important official, a manager of Herod's affairs in some way. 
And so we assume that this woman uh, who's married to, to Chusa would be very wealthy. Somebody who's close to that power would be likely a wealthy person. And so she had means to help support Jesus. And so there's somebody who's just a, a few degrees away from Herod himself who's in Jesus' uh, group of disciples, this woman, Joanna, the wife of Chusa. And this woman only appears in Luke's Gospel. We see here later in Luke 24, she's also one of the ones who sees the empty tomb. So this woman, Joanna, a wealthy woman close to power in, in Herod's, uh, you might say, in his, in his government, may well have been uh, a source of information for, for Luke for what was going on inside Herod's household. And one commentator notes that Luke himself seems to have had some detailed knowledge about Herod, possibly from Joanna, and we can't say for sure, but Luke has a special interest in Herod and mentions certain stories about Herod that are only in his gospel. We see in Luke chapter 9, for example, that Herod was interested in seeing Jesus. Luke 9, verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had, uh, had risen again. This sounds like what Mark was saying. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So again, only Luke says that Herod was interested in meeting Jesus. Also, our story from today in Luke 13, only Luke records this story about Herod wanting to kill Jesus, or maybe the Pharisees at least said so. Also, we won't turn there, but Luke 23 Jesus appears before Herod, and remember, what did Jesus say to Herod when Herod interrogated him? Remember? Exactly right. He said nothing. Only Luke records that Herod interviewed Jesus as part of his trials and mentions, of course, that Jesus said nothing to Herod, but Herod also said in Luke 23, 15, that he didn't find any guilt in Jesus. So this man, Herod, who had for at least a couple of years wanted to see Jesus, Did when he finally got a chance to, he wanted Jesus to perform a miracle, he wanted Jesus to say something, but Jesus did neither one, didn't even speak to him, so he sent him away, but said that he finds no guilt in Jesus. So again, Luke has a special interest in Herod. Now back to our passage in Luke 13, just with a little bit of background on Herod, we can see perhaps what's going on here. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. So just at that time, Jesus was was speaking here, maybe it was immediately then or shortly afterwards, but they say, go away, leave here, and we don't know for sure where here is, but as I said before, it's probably likely he was across the Jordan in Perea, which was one of the areas Herod ruled. So if Jesus was in Galilee or Perea, that's a place where Herod could have him arrested and killed, but if he was in Judea, or maybe Samaria, or outside of Galilee and Perea, Herod wouldn't have the power to do such a thing. So if Jesus is in Herod's kingdom, they're saying, get out, leave, because Herod wants to arrest you and kill you. They're saying, go to maybe Judea, where, where you'll be safe from Herod, or maybe somebody else, someplace else further away. Now, it's kind of strange to see these Pharisees with this, at least, apparent interest in and concern about Jesus, it's not very common to have them care about Jesus' well-being. Again, staying in the Gospel of Luke, 
as we see some themes in Luke, one of them being references to, to Herod, we also have hostility between the, of the Pharisees towards Jesus. Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, all he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves, that is, the scribes and Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed whether, or together what they might do to Jesus. Next chapter, 7. We have verse 36. One of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, that is Jesus. So it's nice to be invited to, to lunch. He entered the Pharisee's table, or house rather, and reclined at the table. There was also a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster violet perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what, who and what sort of woman, a person this woman is, who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And so, Jesus is at this Pharisee's home. The Pharisee doesn't seem to be one who's really interested in Jesus as a prophet to learn from him, but to judge him. Uh, chapter 11, verse 37. Another meal. When Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee saw it. He was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. And then Jesus goes and, and and gives a bunch of woes to the Pharisees and lawyers at this lunch, a very contentious sort of lunch. So Jesus wasn't ingratiating himself to the Pharisee here, but he's being bold and speaking the truth about what they needed to hear about their their hypocrisy. And it's in this context, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, skipping ahead to Luke 15, we see the Pharisees, verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling at Jesus' fellowship with sinners. But one thing we can be thankful for, because the Pharisees grumbled, we get three of our favorite stories, don't we? We have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. So if it hadn't been for these Pharisees grumbling, we might not have these wonderful stories that are so precious to us. And then one more we'll look at in Luke 16, verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So we see the scoffing of the Pharisees, but they also love money. And again, because of this scoffing, we get this story of the rich man and Lazarus. So we get some benefit out of the Pharisees and their attitude towards Jesus a lot of great teaching from him that's precious to us. So Luke, in his gospel, does not show cordial relations between the Pharisees and Jesus. And yet, in Luke 13, we see them presumably trying to protect Jesus from Herod's hostility himself. 
Now, we don't see this quite so much in Luke, but in other Gospels we see even more hostility towards Jesus. Matthew 12, 14 says, The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And Matthew 21 speaks of the chief priests and Pharisees seeking to seize him, and John also mentions this a couple times. So there are times in other Gospels when the the Pharisees want to arrest and destroy Jesus themselves. And Matthew, in his Gospel, shows the Pharisees working closely with the chief priests to arrest and crucify Jesus. Usually the Pharisees and chief priests were at odds theologically, but when it came to Jesus, they both hated him and wanted to have him dead. So now we ask ourselves, looking at this warning in Luke 13, are they being sincere? Now we know there are some Pharisees who were sympathetic to Jesus. Can you name one? Yeah, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He, at least in John 3 and later in in the Gospel of John, seems to have some sympathy for Jesus. So we can't say that all the Pharisees and all the scribes were 100% against Jesus. There are probably some that may have even believed Jesus uh, secretly. In fact, there's a a note to that in another Gospel, that there's some who, who follow him secretly but were afraid to come forward. So it could be sincere, or it could be more hostile. We just can't say. One commentator said this, the Pharisees no doubt wished to scare Jesus that they might exult over his fright. Now, you've got to be careful when a commentator says no doubt, or this is a certain thing, because you always find another commentator who says the same, an opposite thing, no doubt. Um, so I, I found some commentators saying this is what he wanted. They, want, they were hostile towards him, or some would say no doubt they wanted to help him from being arrested by Herod. It may be that these Pharisees wanted Jesus to leave the sphere of Herod's influence and come into Judea, where the high priest would have more authority closer to Jerusalem. I think, based on the hostility we see in Luke, that they're probably not truly trying to warn Jesus. Maybe they're lying and want Jesus to show some cowardice, or they want to lessen his influence. If Jesus hides away, the the crowds won't listen to him. But if it was indeed true that Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and we don't see that anywhere else. We see Herod wanting to see Jesus, to have a miracle performed, but nowhere else does it say Herod wanted him dead, at least not until later on in the Gospel. Why would Jesus, or why would Herod want Jesus to die? And again, we can't say for sure, because it doesn't say, but maybe because he was jealous of Jesus' influence, or maybe it was fear that Jesus would try to avenge John's death. Remember, Herod thought that Jesus might have been the resurrected John the Baptist. Now, if you have somebody killed, this is true in all sorts of ghost stories, right? You kill somebody, and they get raised from the dead. What do they want to do? They want to come and get the person who killed them. So maybe he was just, again, superstitious, thinking that John the Baptist was beheaded, he's risen from the dead, and he is looking for vengeance. So Herod might have been afraid if he wanted Jesus dead. In any case, we don't know for sure, but that's what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. Go away, leave here, for whatever reason... Herod wants to kill you. Well, Jesus has a response, verses 32 and 33. Jesus says to these Pharisees, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Whether these Pharisees are truly trying to warn him or not, Jesus appears to take the Pharisees at their word and has a response to Herod. He refers to him as that fox. 
And it could be a reference to Herod being sly, or others think it refers to someone being insignificant or without honor, like saying, this man is not a lion, a strong, great, roaring beast, but a fox, more a slinky, sneaky, cunning, but not very strong. In any case, Jesus' response is this, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Jesus still has work to do. In particular, he has miracles. He casts out demons and performs cures. He's not going to leave because he must journey on. He has a divine appointment in Jerusalem, and he has work to do before he gives his life. So he has today, tomorrow, and the the next day, he's going to accomplish his goal. Or you might have a marginal note where it says, I reach my goal. You might say, it is perf- I'm perfected or completed. It's the same root in the Greek as when he said it is finished. The idea of completing something. It is finished. So when Jesus reaches his goal, that means he's on the cross dying for us. Now this third day I don't think is a reference to his resurrection, but to the short time again before he arrives in Jerusalem. It's not literally three days, but within a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months, Jesus is going to be out of Perea, out of Herod's influence and in Jerusalem where he will give up his life on his own timetable. He will accomplish the purpose for which he came. Now, I just read earlier, Luke 13, 22, says he was proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Going back even further, Luke 9, 11, speaks of the days approaching for his ascension, that going back to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So Luke makes a point a couple of times that Jesus feet are set towards Jerusalem, even as he spends a few months beforehand away from Jerusalem, he is there going to Jerusalem to accomplish his goal. And it is to die. And he alludes to that here in this very passage. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. It's ironic, I think, because these Pharisees were warning of death from Herod, but Where was Herod's power? I've said it several times. Did Herod have any power in Jerusalem? He didn't. But Jesus knew that's where he was going to die. Jesus, to to leave Herod's influence, puts himself in in a a greater or a a lesser uh, danger. Greater danger, yeah. Going to to Judea was a greater danger to him. Uh, One commentator said this, In the end, Herod will be much less threat than Jerusalem. And it's, it's a shame, really, that this city, Jerusalem, should have welcomed the prophets. They had the temple there. They had the most influence from the Word of God, didn't they? They should have anyway. This place should have been the crown of religious life for the Jews, the one that welcomed the Messiah the most, and yet it was the most threatening place, not just for Jesus, but for other prophets to be. It's a place where so many of them were martyred. And Jesus, we see, has this lament over Jerusalem. Luke 13, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left you desolate, and I say to you, You will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's a parallel in Matthew 23. We won't read it right now. 
but it's almost word for word what is said here, except in Matthew 23, it's set during Passion Week. So Jesus is actually in the area around Jerusalem and he's looking at the city and, and saying these same words. And the only difference uh, is when Jesus says at the end of verse 34, uh, but you would not have it, he says in Matthew 23, uh, it, you were unwilling. But otherwise, the words are, are basically the same. So the, and at least the question here, Luke has Jesus' words about Jerusalem in Luke 13 before he even gets to Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, we see him saying these words while he's in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem during his Passion Week. So did Jesus say these things twice or did he, did one of the gospel writers move things around a bit? And I think it's likely that Luke pulled the story of Jesus saying these things about Jerusalem from Matthew 23 later on in Jesus' ministry and pulling them forward thematically into Luke 13. And I think that's because you see here, verse 33, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And so Luke is thinking about prophets dying in Jerusalem, and it's natural to take his lament later in Jesus' ministry and pulling it forward. Now, they didn't have footnotes and all those kind of things like we might do today or, or quotes in the same way. We might like the gospel writers always to do things in sequence or to give time, you know, put a little tag next to each thing as to exactly when Jesus said that. But I think it's certainly within the realm of the way that people wrote biographies back in these days to pull some information from one part later in somebody's life and pull it forward and incorporate it into this meaningful way, this thematic way in Luke 13. So either he said it twice or I think he pulled it from Matthew's, the same account Matthew had and and puts it in this spot in Luke 13. So he didn't necessarily say this, these words, the same time he said what he said earlier in verse 33. Now, let's, Jerusalem, we've seen this word many times. We know it well. Capital of uh of Israel these days, and for long centuries before that. Some of you have been there before. It's high on a plateau in Judah. I want to talk a little bit about it because it helps us understand what Jesus is saying here when he's lamenting over Jerusalem. Uh, the name Jerusalem wasn't used until later, but we see the area earlier in, in the Bible, in Moses' writings in the Pentateuch. Genesis 14, 18 speaks of Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine to to Abraham. And he was a priest of God Most High. And commentators associate Salem with this area of Jerusalem, again, before it was called Jerusalem. Also, in this area of Jerusalem was Mount Moriah. You might remember this from Genesis 22, where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac in this very spot. Some say it's the very spot where the temple was built, this area where Isaac was supposed to have been Sacrifice, but God provided uh, another sacrifice. And Mount Moriah, in this area where Jerusalem was built later on, was called Mount Zion. And again, we see the word Zion used many, many times, especially in the Old Testament. Now, Jerusalem itself became the capital of Israel under King David. Second uh, Samuel, let's look back at a few of these stories in the history portion of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 5, David's early reign was in Hebron. 2 Samuel 5, 5, 
says that Hebron, David reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Remember there was a, uh, a struggle for power after Saul's death, but after some time David was the king over all Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away thinking David cannot enter here. They thought they were impregnable in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So early on, Jerusalem was called the city of David. And later on, turn to the next chapter, verse 17 of chapter 6. This is the resting place of the ark. Remember, at this time there's no temple yet. The ark was where it was. Sometimes it was captured. It would move around from place to place. But... At this point, 2 Samuel 6, 17, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So this is where the ark was rested in Jerusalem, and later the temple was built there by Solomon himself. Jerusalem early on had great wealth. You might recall 1 Kings 10, 27, that Solomon made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. And even more than its great wealth, we have great spiritual wealth. Jerusalem, because it was the home of the temple, was called the city of God. Turn to Psalm 48. There are a number of Psalms of Zion. But Psalm 48 speaks of how impressive this city is. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion and the far north, the city of the great king. Verse 4 speaks of how impressive it is. For lo, the kings assembled themselves, they passed by it together. They saw it, then they were amazed, they were terrified, they fled in alarm. Panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. So these great kings would see how magnificent Jerusalem was and they would be afraid of it. They would be terrified. Verse 8. As we have seen, so we have, or as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. So God establishes this great city. Verse 12. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. So this city of Zion, Jerusalem, was so impressive. The defenses are so strong, God is compared to them. God is like these great towers of Zion. You want to have an illustration of the power of God. Look at how strong Jerusalem is. It's also a beautiful place. Psalm 50, verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Again, we hear Zion, think of Jerusalem. The perfection of beauty God shines out of Zion. 1 Kings 11.36, God speaks of Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. And then Psalm 87, verses 2 and 3, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Is that cause a tune in your head? 
Orisons of the year spoken, Zion, city of our God. That's where that hymn comes from. Psalm 87, verse 3. So you can see how, how beautiful, how strong Jerusalem was and how much God loved it and how God puts his name upon it. But God's protection of this beautiful earthly Jerusalem was conditional on Israel's faithfulness. And we've seen some of the highest highs in Israel's history centered on Jerusalem, like when David brings the ark into the city and he's dancing before the Lord and he's so glad to have God's physical presence uh, there in the in the city. But we also see in Jerusalem the lowest lows, the highest highs, lowest lows for the nation of Israel are in Jerusalem. Listen to Isaiah 121. Speaking of Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. This is something like 300 years after, after David and Solomon in Isaiah's day, and now this faithful city is like a harlot, the, the example of unfaithfulness. Righteousness lodged in here, but now murderers. We see many instances, we could look at this for hours, but won't, of God's judgment pronounced against Jerusalem. Jeremiah 7, verse 17. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. So these Jerusalemites and, and the uh, those in Judah more broadly are worshiping false gods. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? Verse 20, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. So that's God's judgment against Jerusalem. Second Kings 23-27, the Lord says, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen. That's sad. The city God has chosen, he will cast it off. And the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. So God elevates Jerusalem and he brings it low. And in 587 or 586, seems like when I was in Bible college, 586 was the date it was destroyed, but I think recent uh, analysis shows it's 587, so i got to reset my, my mind. All that stuff I memorized might be off by a year. 586, 587, I'm not sure, within a year or so, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. And we see that in Jeremiah. Look at verse 52. Again, we won't go into great detail. But Jeremiah 52, just think of how Jerusalem was destroyed as impregnable, much like the strength of God. It's so impressive that those kings would come and see and fear when they, they look at it. But Jeremiah 52 says this, verse 12, On the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Azaradan rather, the king of the captain of the bodyguard who was in the service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire. So the temple, the king's house, all the great houses. So all the army of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. So the, the city's just laid waste, leveled. Temples burned, houses knocked down, 
the walls knocked over. That's what happened as a result of the unfaithfulness of, of Israel. Turn over a couple of pages in your Bible in the Lamentations. And as I was looking at Lamentations to pull out verses that I could illustrate this with, I almost wanted to read the whole thing, because you, you could. But just listen to verse 1 of Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. That's Jerusalem, of course. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. Look at verse 8. Um, Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Chapter 2, verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty a joy to all the earth? They'd heard some of these psalms of how great Zion was, and now they wonder, how is it possible this level of the city could be that perfection of beauty? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is a day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. But is this the work of Nebuchadnezzar? It's not. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. So it was the Chaldeans and Babylonians who pulled down the walls, who burned the house of God and all the houses. But it was God who had accomplished his purpose because of their unfaithfulness. So again, God builds up Jerusalem, and now he has torn it down in the days of Jeremiah. So now we have, instead of the Psalms that spoke of the glories of Zion and of Jerusalem, we have Psalms like this, Psalm 137, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Later in that same psalm, Psalm 137, verses 4 to 6. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. But this time in 586 or 587 B.C. wasn't the end of it. We see the temple rebuilt in the book of Ezra about 516 B.C. Nehemiah, we don't have time to go there right now, but remember when Nehemiah hears about the fact that the wall is still down, and this is about 444 B.C. So even after the Jews come back, it's decades before Nehemiah actually rebuilds the wall. And so Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem and he weeps over that. And But that's what God used to get the the wall rebuilt, because when the king saw Nehemiah's sadness, he said, why are you sad, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah was able to, to say, it's because my my city is still uh, knocked over, the walls are still down. And so he was allowed to go back and rebuild those walls. Now we fast forward to Jesus' time. It's still the major city of the Jews, but it's ruled over by the Romans. And we see Jesus many times in Jerusalem, of course, but let's look briefly at Luke 19. We see Jesus weeping over the city this is shortly before his crucifixion. Luke 19, verse 41. This, the time in, in, uh, in Jeremiah's life was not the only time Jerusalem was destroyed. It's coming 
also. Luke 19, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not recognize the time of your visitation. So just as Jerusalem was destroyed because of the unfaithfulness in Jeremiah's day, it will be destroyed because of their unfaithfulness in Jesus' day. And it wasn't for some years later. This is around uh, A.D. 30, so it's about 40 years, and A.D. 70 when the Romans destroy Jerusalem. But that's not all for the city. There is a heavenly Jerusalem that is to come. And again, we don't have time to go into all of this, but just listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 21 says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and so forth. Let's move to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It talks about this great wall, and so forth. Verse 22. And again, sorry to go through this so quickly. Speaking of this heavenly city, I saw no temple in it. Remember, Jerusalem had a temple in it. It was knocked down. But this new Jerusalem has no temple, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Look at verse 27. Nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, that is, that city, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, regardless of your view of end times, this city, this great city that we will live in forever, has the name Jerusalem given to it. And so, while we have this Jerusalem that was built by David, over time destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt over the years, destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, even built again today, Whatever happens in the future to this Jerusalem that exists in our own time, God has a heavenly Jerusalem that's coming down and we will live in it forever. So that's the glory of Jerusalem to come. But there is another time in between that is a time of lamentation. Again, back to Luke 13. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says it twice. It's a sign of intense emotion. And this is the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. We have a few examples under Joash the king, uh, I'll read this quickly, Second Chronicles 24, the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. And so they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Jeremiah himself was threatened with death in Jerusalem, more than once. Uh, there was a man, J- Jeremiah 26, named Uriah, who prophesied against the city. And he was threatened with death. He escaped to Egypt, but the king sent men to Egypt to bring Uriah back. 
and it says he slew him with a sword and cast his body into the burial place of the common people. So this man Uriah was killed again in Jerusalem. So Jesus laments now, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Or in Matthew it says, you are unwilling. This picture of God as a, a loving mother bird of some kind is, is fairly common in the Old Testament. Psalm 57.1 is an example. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. So there's a danger here Jesus sees. Jesus wants to save these, these chicks. He wants to save these, these precious little ones, but Jerusalem will not have it. Now, there's two possibilities in this picture here. One is that it's a hen that has some stubborn chicks that won't come when she calls. This morning our dog got out and I had to go chase him, and he wouldn't come when I called, which is very frustrating. Is this a picture of a hen who, who tries to get her chicks to come and be protected under her wings? Or is it another kind of picture of someone who's not allowing the chicks to be gathered? That's a picture you might think of the, the Pharisees, other spiritual leaders who keep the chicks, these people who need to hear the gospel, keep them from listening to Jesus. They want to silence Jesus by killing him. In any case, these chicks are vulnerable. They're, they're weak. They're under threat. It's a, and it's a tragedy for these little ones who be left in danger without being able to be protected by the mother hen. And Jesus continues, he says, your house is left to, your des- left to you desolate, verse 35. Similar words in Jeremiah 12, verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. In Jeremiah 12, 11. It has been made a desolation. Desolate it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate. He uses the word desolate three times in that verse. So in Jeremiah's day, the land was desolate. And in Jesus' day, the, the land would be desolate as well. The city and the temple in it would be destroyed. The judgment severe and complete, just as it was in the days of Jeremiah. But worse than that, worse than the destruction of the buildings, the God of Israel would depart. The God of Israel did not depart the temple when the Babylonians came and destroyed it. The glory of the Lord, remember, in Ezekiel, departed before the destruction. God left before the temple was destroyed. And that's the worst part, is when the God of Israel leaves the temple of the God of Israel when the Son of God leaves the people of God and goes to his death and resurrection, and the people who should have followed him, who should have followed their Messiah, rejected him. God leaves this place desolate because he himself is gone. And Jesus says here, You will not see me till the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's quoting there Psalm 118, verse 26. And this is the same verse he quotes during the triumphal entry, remember Palm Sunday? But that, that time is later on in his ministry. This is before Jesus' lament. And again, this may be because, because Luke pulled this from later in his ministry here. But there's some hope here. There, there's hope because Jesus will go away after his final visit to Jerusalem, but this desolation is not forever. Sometime in the future the Jews will recognize Christ for who he is, and then they'll welcome him. You think of Zechariah. Chapter 2 speaks of this, even before Christ came. Zechariah 2, verses 10 to 12. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord that day and will become my people. 
Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So God has cast off Jerusalem for a time, but he will again choose Jerusalem in a time when the the Jews and many nations will join themselves to the Lord. And again, I can't help but think of Romans 11, verses 25-27, where it says, I do not want you to be informed, uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as is written, this is in Isaiah 59, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this Deliverer comes from Zion, Jerusalem, this holy mountain, this holy city of God, and Jesus will someday come back, and all Israel will be saved, and above that many Gentiles will come to Christ as well. So despite their rejection and their great sin in killing the prophets and then the Son of God, how gracious is God to keep his promises? God is not done with these promises. There will be a time when they will finally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we can pray for that day. And this gathering of the chicks is postponed, but it's not postponed forever. God will one day gather them all in. We are way over time. Sorry, I have some lessons, but we'll have to skip those maybe another time. But let's close in prayer. Father, we look at this passage with great sorrow in so many ways, even as we see Jesus lament over Jerusalem. We, we lament so many in our own day who have heard the gospel but will not come into the protection of Christ. We pray that you would bring in many in our own day who will come to Christ through our witness and the witness of others, that they would know the, the certainty, the, the surety of being saved by the blood of our dear Savior. May we have a sense of purpose like Christ had to complete his work. May we be diligent in finding our goal, to, to pursuing our goal and achieving it in your own good time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.